If you build it, he will come. It's hard to believe that 30 years have passed since Kevin Costner first heard those words whispering through a cornfield in the movie Field of Dreams. Now, it was based on W.P. Kinsella's novel about baseball, Shoeless Joe. Now, Costner's character, Ray, is a farmer. He's struggling, like so many farmers. He also has father issues, as any middle-aged man in any movie you can mention has. And he's obsessed with the thought that because he stopped playing catch with his father at about the age of 14, that's when his relationship with his dad started to break down. And so he walks out into one of his cornfields one night in a, in a meditative spirit and hears a voice on the wind. If you build it, he will come. What is he supposed to build? Well, Ray decides that what he's supposed to build is a ball field. So he will come. So Ray gets to work. He finishes the ball field, and ghostly players arrive. It's the 1909 Chicago White Sox, called the Black Sox because of a cheating scandal. And they're led by his father's hero from baseball history, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, only one other living person can see what Ray sees, those ghostly players playing baseball on that diamond. And one evening, as the players finish the game and start to disappear into the cornfield, Shoeless Joe turns around and points to a catcher who's still there crouched with his mask on. And Shoeless Joe says, if you build it, he will come. And the catcher lifts his mask, and it's Ray's father as a young man. And Ray's father gets up and starts to walk into the cornfield, and Ray says, Dad, do you want to play some catch? And so Ray and his father play catch for the first time in many years. Now, the ball field that was built to make that movie still stands. And next August, the 2020 Chicago White Sox will play the Yankees there. If you build it, they will come. You might have to wait 30, 31 years, but they will come. If you build it, he will come. Now, those words might have been whispered on the wind all through the Old Testament history. If you build it, he will come. So Moses built the tabernacle, and God came. Years later, Samaritans built a temple at Shiloh, and God came. David united the people and built a new capital, Jerusalem, and he put up a house made of cedar, and he, he called out and brought back the sacred relics that were guarantees of God's presence, and sure enough, God came. His son Solomon built the first proper temple worthy of God's presence, and God came and stayed a while. But enemies later, enemies later came and captured the people and destroyed the temple. So now, returned from captivity, the people stand and they look at the rubble 
of what once was their most sacred place. And they know they have to rebuild that temple so God will come back. If they build a new temple and then build a new city around it, they'll be able to believe and to know that God is with them. And God spoke to them through Isaiah. I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. God has a purpose in mind, Isaiah tries to tell them. A purpose greater than the restoration of one nation. What God has done for them is just the beginning. And they built it. And God came. They believed. They felt safe. Because they knew where their God was deep, deep inside that temple. Now, Jesus' first disciples see the temple, and they just can't get over how it's adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. Now, the ancestors who built the second temple wouldn't recognize it because it's been expanded so many times. So in Jesus' day, the dimensions of the Jerusalem temple are staggering. 460 meters to the east, 315 meters to the north, 280 meters to the south, and the western wall is 485 meters long. The walls above ground rise 30 meters, 10 stories tall, and their foundations are as deep as 20 meters in some places to hit bedrock. Surely, that's a house big enough for God to live in. And the people know God is there deep, deep, deep inside the temple. So as long as the temple stands, as long as it lasts, and surely it will last forever, we will believe, we will know that God is with us. But Jesus says, as for these things that you see, the days will come will not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And Jesus goes on to talk about what's ahead for his disciples, but he's not actually speaking to the disciples in his day. Through Luke, he is speaking to a later generation of followers who are just beginning to experience some of the things Jesus speaks about in our reading from Luke 21. And some of those disciples in Luke's day could remember about 20 years before, 40 years after Jesus, when the Romans destroyed that magnificent temple. Now, they did leave a few stones standing one upon another, a fragment of the foundation of the Western Wall. It's still there in Jerusalem as a place of pilgrimage. But the Christians that Luke writes to are discovering how God is with them anywhere and everywhere. They don't have to be within the borders of any one country, and they don't need a temple at the center of that country to believe and to know that God is with them. They trust in Jesus' words. They trust in the te testimony of the apostles, and they trust in the ministry of people like Luke. If we build it, God will come. 
Now, there are some Christians today who insist that the temple must be rebuilt in Jerusalem because they believe Jesus won't come again unless they build a new temple. But there's a problem. There are two huge mosques on the top of what's left of Temple Hill. It's the third most holy place in Islam. Well, just knock them down, and then if we build a temple, he will come. Now, the common people in ancient Israel and in Jesus' time can't go deep inside the temple to the place they believe and they know God lives. The disciples with Jesus in our gospel story, they can step back and crane their necks and look up, up, up and see the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where they know God lives. We are like them in many ways. We try to anchor our faith, our hope, and even our love in things we can see and touch and count on always being there for us. We also believe that there must be something we can do, build, restore, protect, in order to hold on to our faith, our hope, and our love. So we make our trust in God and our expectations of God conditional. If we build it, he will come. If we build, restore, protect it, God will bless us and all will be well. We do that with doctrine and theology and both the church's official teaching and what we really believe in our guts. If I just learn and know enough and affirm the right beliefs, if what I believe in my heart is proven to be true, I'll believe, I'll know God is with me. Any statement of faith, hope, even love, any statement that begins with if and continues to then is not faith, hope, or love. It's magical thinking. Isaiah's people want to rebuild a house for God, and God says, look, I'm going to create new heavens and a new earth. You will build your temple, your city, and I will make it much more, so much more than you could ever ask or imagine. So what if, as, as we pray for renewal in our churches in this part of the world and in the Presbyterian Church in Canada at, and at Glenview, what if God answers our prayers for renewal and says, I'm about to make a new heaven and a new earth? Would we be comforted if God said, look, I'm going to change everything, make it all new, just watch me? Well, I want to know if we can negotiate that. Maybe, God, you could let me keep a few of the things that I take as anchors for my faith, hope, and love. When I was a kid in Sunday school, I was fascinated by the ceiling in our church. It's made up of big square panels of inlaid wood that are in a diamond pattern. 
And we kids used to look up and try and count the slats of the, you know, the, 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 the strips in the inlay without our eyes crossing, because as you got further into that diamond, your eyes would start to be seriously physically challenged. But I was also fascinated by two of the three stained glass windows that were in our church. In those days, there were only those three. They were up above the choir. And sometime after the Second World War, the choir had collected money and gave those windows to the church. And the, the two on the side each had a gigantic golden harp on it. But to a kid's eyes, it didn't look like a harp. To my eyes, it looked like the police sergeant's desk in the Dick Tracy cartoons. And worse than that, there was a, a, a finial a curly cue on the top of each harp. And to me, that looked like God was doing this and looking down at me, the police sergeant, the judge at the bench. I was afraid, but I couldn't stop looking. But where was the judge when I wasn't there and he wasn't judging me? I wondered. Where did God go when they turned the lights out, when everybody was gone? Where was God on Monday through Saturday? Well, there was a vent in the ceiling directly above the choir. No comments about hot air rising from the base section. I thought that God was up there, safe, and I was safe from God. But I, I believed and I knew that God was somewhere up in the attic of First Presbyterian Church, Stellart in Nova Scotia. I was sure of that. And it was a long time, a long time before I could allow God down from the attic and out from behind that judgment desk. I found these words just this weekend, and they're words of Leif Peterson, the son of the great preacher and scholar Eugene Peterson, he read them at his father's funeral. And he said in all his years of preaching, his father claimed he only had one sermon. He only had one sermon in all his years of preaching. And his father told him when he had grown up that he also would go into Leif's room every night and say these words over his sleeping son. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless in love. I think a lot of us live a long time trying to hold on to what was familiar and safe in our pasts before we can get the truth of those words, before we can get that God is so much more, intends so much more and so much better for us and for all that God has created than we can ever expect or imagine. So do we really believe that God has good things, great things in store for us? Or do we, like a lot of Christians, look to the future with grief as the anchors of our faith, hope, and love seem to be slipping away or are already lost? But if, if we restore, we think, if we rebuild, if we recover, preserve, protect, if we do what makes sense to us, then great things will happen. No, it's not magic. 
Great things can and will happen, yes, but will we recognize them? They may come, but they won't be the same people God brought to us even 10 years ago. If our God is small enough to be controlled and contained within what we know and what makes sense to us, our expectations will be small. Our dreams will be small. Our faith will be weak. Our hope will be faint. And even our love will be measured and cold. But if our God is as uncontrollable and uncontainable as Scripture tells us, watch out. Expect to be surprised. And maybe disappointed when God doesn't do exactly what we want God to do. We'll be delighted and maybe frightened because to discern and do God's will for us always leads to change and lots of work. But I ask you, which life, which God is better? Amen. Glory to God.